continuing in our study in the book of Acts, as you continue to see the Lord working through His church, seeing the church equipped and going out and spreading the gospel. Acts chapter 6, we're going to read the first seven verses together. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, and and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of the Lord spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning of studying your word and uh, seeing the important truths that you have for us. I pray that you would... uh, uh, that you would convict our hearts of where, areas that we need to change. I pray that your spirit would illuminate your word as we study it this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Recently came across an article uh, that was titled, uh, The United States That Never Were. Uh, so it was an interesting article. It talked about, loud that some, it talked about some states that never came to be um, and some of the brief his- histories that were behind them. Uh, and many of these... Um, these, these uh, failed attempts at statehood began because there was some type of disunity in the state, some type of uh, disagreement that escalated into the group, that group of people, particular group of people decided that they wanted to break off and form their own state. Uh, the naming of the states often uh, combined several of the, the states around, and so they're kind of an interesting list here. Um, first one uh, is Delmarva. So you guess where it where, Several states those would be, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, a little peninsula of land that uh, the Delaware is on, uh, at one time wanted to uh, take Maryland's part of that, of that little bit of land and take um, uh, Virginia's part of that little bit of land and combine it to Delmarva. So apparently, apparently uh, that they wanted their own piece of uh, statehood, never got it though. Another one um, is uh, Superior. Uh, so... Maybe you can guess, yeah, Michigan, uh, Upper Peninsula, I don't know, maybe this is the thing, they, do they often threaten to pull away, or I don't know. <laughs> Apparently, it began back as far as before the Civil War, and they wanted their own, become their own state, and uh, because of the Civil War, the plans were put on hold, but according to this article, um, they occasionally, when taxes get high enough, they complain enough, they, they, they threaten that again. Another one is the, the state of Scott, or actually it was the free and independent state of Scott. And it came from Scott, town, Scott County, Tennessee. And when Tennessee decided to secede and become part of the South in the Civil War, Scott County said, we want to go with the North. And so they formally seceded. Now, Tennessee never really recognized them as seceding. They did nothing about it. But um, according to this article, they uh, were the, the last state until 1986 because they were never formally introduced back to Tennessee until 1986 uh, when they celebrated their uh, 125th year. Um, Tennessee said, all right, we'll let you back in. 
So, <laughs> so that's the state of Scott. Uh, the last one we'll look at here, uh, this is a tougher one to, to get, Texlahoma. Uh, and uh, apparently back um, after the advent of the automobile and as roads were becoming, going across the United States, the area of northern Texas, western Oklahoma had particularly bad roads, and maybe they still do today. Um, but they, around, right before World War II, they um, decided that it would be a good idea that they would break off so they could focus on their road system, uh, as well as maybe some of their own uh, agenda they wanted to a, a accomplish there. Uh, and so they, they came up with the name Texlahoma. But the chief stumbling block to this proposed state that ultimately doomed this, uh, the state of Texlahoma, not surprisingly, was the fact that the good people of Texlahoma couldn't stomach the fact that they wouldn't be called Texans. So that's according <laughs> to the article, not surprising. Um, so arguments and dissensions and cultural hostilities destroy the unity of, of everything from governments to groups to organizations. And going across a millennia, that's happened. Now, unfortunately, the church hasn't fared much better over the centuries. Uh, not too long ago, several years ago, a uh, church in Dallas split apart because, according to the papers, and it's amazing this even this far in the papers, one of the church leaders was upset that his piece of ham was smaller than the child next to him. <laughs> and so, the, it, whatever happened escalated and say. Good grief. At least if you can argue over anything, argue over getting a bigger piece of bacon. <laughs> it's very important. <laughs> but it, it is, it's the case of over much um, petty arguments. Things seem sometimes even comical uh, when you're looking back at them, but they cause big problems uh, during, that, during that time. And they, and they, they threaten the unity of, of the group that it's, it, that it's with. In our passage that we're looking at today, we're going to see a crisis of disunity that threatened the growth during the infancy of the church. And the solution that the apostles came up with eventually brought about the office of a deacon uh, with appointing wise, spiritually minded men who set the example of service for their local church. And in our broader picture we look at, as we're going to look at today, we see that every Christian can be discipled and equipped to serve. The church is best unified in accomplishing the message, the mission of making disciples when its members are equipped to humbly serve and disciple other people. So we're going to look at a couple points here. Uh, the first one is disunity endangers gospel growth. Disunity endangers gospel growth. So we see in the very beginning here of chapter 6, it says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying. Alright, so we don't see, we don't have an exact number here, but if you go back two chapters back, it mentions that 5,000 men were saved. If you do the math and if you say, okay, so maybe most of those men had wives and they maybe had at least two kids, you're talking closer to 20,000 people that got saved in Jerusalem. So as you look at several problems we have here, uh, the first one would be crowds. Uh, crowds. Right? So when you think about having an overcrowded church, 
most pastors, if they're talking to each other, would say, that's a good problem, right? Yeah, so this is not a bad thing that's happening here. A lot of people are getting saved, and in fact, they've gotten saved so fast that they're having trouble uh, being able to minister to everybody, meet the needs, be able, be, having trouble to, to be able to disciple everybody because of the, the great number of people here. And then again, we think in our, we think in our mindset of today of a, maybe they met in a basketball stadium, obviously that didn't, it was in, it was in small churches that were all across the, the city, small little house churches. And we know from the, the book of Acts, at least two house churches were mentioned, uh, the one that the disciples 120 disciples were in at the beginning of Acts um, when the Holy Spirit first came upon everybody. And then later on when Peter is freed from prison, uh, he goes to, this, to one of the house churches. It probably was a larger one as well. Uh, that uh, had a, They came to the door that it was locked. A servant came. So likely it was a bigger house as well. So we don't know how many churches, these, these uh, home churches there were uh, or how big they were, but there would have had to have been quite a few of them to be able to meet the needs of this many people. And you think of the, the difficulty and the, the challenge it would be to just meet the spiritual needs and disciple and to deal with sin and care for physical needs of a church that was this large and split across that many places in, in a time period where communication uh, was much different than it is today. <coughs> so crowds was, was, a, was, was a, a challenge that they had to overcome. Next part of the verse says, There arose a complaint against two groups of people. It says the Hebrews and the Hellenists. All right, so you think of these two groups of people. Uh, the Hebrews would have been the, the native Israelites, uh, the native Jews who lived in Jerusalem. The Hellenists uh, likely would have been um, most of, the, it would be Jews that came back to live in Jerusalem, uh, Jews that, um, who formerly lived abroad. They probably spoke Greek. They absorbed a lot of the, or at least some of the Greek culture they read from the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, so likely they had moved back to Jerusalem at some point and gotten saved during the Pentecost, during the time of Pentecost. And so you have these two different groups of people. Obviously the Hellenists would be a, a minority of Jews that had moved back. Uh, but because of the culture of that day, they were looked on as second-class Jews. The Pharisees of the day... Uh, considered them as being second class. And so we have the, the, the challenge here, and again, having a, a multicultural church is a blessing. It means that we see God's love um, being influenced across the whole church. We're one body. We're, even though there can be different cultures, there's the one body of believers. That is a wonderful thing. But because of our fallen natures, we have trouble sometimes with, with cultures, and this happened here in the, in the church in Jerusalem. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And so when you see that, <clears throat> when you, when you uh, think through the, the issues that were happening here, thousands of uh, new converts that, that were Jews getting saved, and perhaps hundreds of these Hellenist Jews that have come that are saved, so you have a whole lot of new believers, uh, not, uh, not developed in their faith, not firm in their faith, and they're having trouble with their cultures, uh, combining their cultures here uh, because of the prejudices during the day. And they were complaining because their needs were overlooked. So we have crowds, we have cultures. 
<clears throat> we have complaints. And not surprisingly, this matter comes to a head over what, what would seem to be like an insignificant issue. Their, their widows are being neglected during the daily distribution of foods. Uh, and the, these Hellenists, or these um, foreign-born foreign born Jews, were feeling slighted, feeling that maybe they, they were not, or their widows were not being taken care of properly. And this was a, a big deal in the Jewish society. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy saying, And the Levite and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who are with, within your town shall come and eat and be filled. The Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. And Paul tells Timothy, Honor your widows who are truly widows. So as we see this passage here, we see that there was a natural dichotomy of cultures that could have easily split the church. We see culture and crowds and coming up to coming to a head here where the, the there were complaints were being brought forth, and the church was in danger of being split. And as we kind of see, as we've gone through Acts, we've seen uh, Satan's attacks kind of progress in different angles of towards the church. We see it uh, in the first several chapters that that there was a was direct persecution, and then it, then as that only seemed to strengthen the resolve of Christians. We see that there was uh, a sin from within the church, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, and how, the, how that affected the church and how God stepped in very quickly to show that, that honesty and that um, being a true Christian from, in, from within, uh, having, the, having a right, true relationship with God and not uh, falsifying your, your actions, being... Uh, uh, hypocrites was it a very important part of the church and so it, it, we get to Acts chapter 6 and we see a little bit of a cultural discrimination happening or, or per, at least perceived discrimination uh, and the Hellenists were believing that the neglect was deliberate so right off the bat here in this first, um, uh, first uh, verse we see that the church is dealing with a disunity that is endangering their growth. They're, they've been seeing many people get saved and they're seeing their capacity of their, their uh, outreach come to the max and they're, they're being stretched very thin. And things are, are, are having trouble because of perhaps the organization that was going on there, a lack of organization. So the disunity was being endangered. Um, as we move on to the next several verses, we'll see that discipleship enhances gospel growth. So discipleship enhances gospel growth. Seeing people saved and teaching them about the word so that they became mature Christian, mature Christians will enhance the, the opportunities for gospel growth. We'll solve some of the problems that have come here because of, um, our, because of sin nature. A couple of things we're going to look at here. Um, the principles here, things that are prioritized. So verse 2, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So verse 2, um, uh, Luke brings up the, the fact that he says the twelve. And that's the only time that Luke uses that term, the twelve, in the book of Acts. He used it several times uh, in, in his gospel of Luke. Um, but the only time it's used here in the book of Acts, and perhaps because the, the ministry of the twelve is being spread out, and we see so many other um, believers and churches planted and that the emphasis is not on the 
12 apostles, especially as you go uh, further in the book of Acts. But the 12 apostles summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So what, is, what, is, what are they saying is their priority here? The priority here for the spiritual leadership here, the, the pastors, those that are leading the church, is the word of God, prayer and the word of God. As they mentioned in verse 4, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. Um, obviously, that they maybe it was brought up that they could be the ones that kind of solved this issue and um, were able to mediate and split the, the division of the food in a, in a very uh, equitable way. Um, but the apostles here were saying, if we were to do that, we would have to neglect the time that we spend studying and bringing God's word to you and to other people. It would make our prayer life suffer. When pastors neglect Bible study and prayer, the church suffers and languishes in spiritual infancy. Uh, one one uh, writer on this says, Programs are no substitute for the power of God in His Word. Those whom God has called to the ministry of prayer and the Word must make it their priority. Paul tells us in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 that pastors are given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building of the body of Christ. The main job of the pastor is equipping the saints for the work of service, for the work of ministry, to the building of the body of Christ. So as we see in this passage here, prayer and preaching, prayer and study in the word, prayer and proclamation of God's word is inseparably linked. The duty of the pastor is to pray and to preach. Um, pray for the application of the message. Pray for personal purity. Uh, pray for understanding. Pray for the needs of his congregation. And several verses here, and these come from uh, several, several of Paul's epistles, and they're a lot of the very ones we studied last year as we were studying the prayers of Paul. Paul writes in Romans, God, in whom I serve uh, in my spirit in the preaching of my gospel of his son, preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. In Ephesians, Paul says, I do not cease giving thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul goes on in Philippians, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you. And then later on in Acts, when Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, to the, uh, the Ephesian uh, leaders of their churches there, uh, he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that have happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in many different times to say how prayer was vital in his ministry and how he continued to pray for his people and how preaching the word was a vital part of the ministry that he had. He did not shrink from declaring anything to you that was profitable, that, was, that, was, um, that would have helped them in their walk with God. He said, I testify both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
pastors may, must make it a priority to preach and to pray. On, on a side note here, the, the duties of a pastor, of, 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 a, of a shepherd, uh, include a lot of other things. In 2 Timothy, Paul tells, tells Timothy <clears throat> to do the work of an evangelist. And sometimes uh, it is uh, enticing, I mean, it is a, it's a natural desire for a pastor to love to study and pray and spend time in study. But Paul reminds Timothy, it is not just our duty to pray and preach, but also do the work of evangelist. And so there are other duties that pastors do, and there's other responsibilities that God expects of pastors. Pastors are not isolationists. Um, and pastors set the example of serving the church as well. Uh, so there's a priority of preaching, a priority of prayer, uh, and fulfilling what God has, has for us to do. Uh, the next uh, uh, point here that, that happened, or that we see here, we're gonna, as the... <clears throat> church um, enhanced, as the discipleship was enhanced, is that there was preparation going on. There was preparation going on. Verse 3, Therefore, brethren, this is the apostle speaking, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Seek out uh, from among you seven men of good reputation. Uh, So we see that right away, the solution here is the apostle's um, command the believers to select or to oversee or to supervise. Uh, choose from among you uh, seven men with, the, with uh, very important characteristics. And as, I, as we think through this here, uh, I notice that the, these men are prepared for this task. They are equipped to do this. As we, as we look at these different uh, uh, characteristics that these apostles are looking for in this group of men, these uh, future deacons or the future office of a deacon, we see that it, it wasn't by accident that these men were able to fulfill these, um, this, these office, this office of leadership, the, this or, the way of organizing the church and better meeting the needs of people. They were a men who had been discipled, who had been equipped and readied uh, to be able to, to serve other people. Uh, several things that, that the apostles mention here, uh, five to be exact, five characteristics um, that he says here, therefore seek out among you seven men of good reputation. So first of all, uh, the, the apostles mentioned that those who lead the church uh, need to be men. Of course, this is not discounting the, the vital role that women have in the church, and um, Paul tells Titus this, um, they are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So there's a very important task that women have in their homes and in churches as well uh, in, in ministries to other women. And throughout um, the book of Acts, we see other women such as Dorcas and Lydia and Phoebe and Priscilla uh, that were greatly used for God. Uh, nevertheless, it, it got, it's by God's design that, that men are the spiritual leaders of the church and that assume spiritual leadership roles. Second characteristic uh, is that he says that they f- should be from among you. So we think it may be obvious that they should be believers. They should be men who have placed their faith in Christ, who are part of the body of believers, who meet regularly with you, who are uh, faithful 
in their attendance, faithful in their study of God's word. They're, they're among you. Uh, and a church that edifies and equips its members will have qualified candidates for the office of a deacon. We're, we're very fortunate um, that, that our church has uh, deacons who, are, who serve in a very faithful way. They go on to say they need to have good reputation. Good reputation. So they're men of integrity, above reproach. And you can, uh, in your own time, look to First uh, Timothy 3 and Titus 1 to see more of the, uh, the, the spelled out how the, the a deacon needs to be above reproach and the, the qualifications there for deacons as well as pastors. Um, and these... Um, these characteristics, being having being a man of integrity, being above reproach, was a vital uh, integrity. Was, was was a vital characteristic to the early church, in helping set the example, helping others be imitators of them. They must be men of good reputation. They must also be full of the spirit. Full of the spirit, in other words, yielded to his control in every area of their lives. As we see here in a little bit um, down further in verse 5, that uh, Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit. And as we will study later on several chapters further, Barnabas was a man that was full of the Holy Spirit. And so the, the idea that the, the, um, these men who were equipped and able to serve and ready to serve were, were empowered by the Holy Spirit under his control yielded to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and finally, men that have wisdom. Men that have wisdom. So biblical, having a biblical and theological knowledge, as well as a, a, a practical wisdom in knowing how to, how to implement things, how to deal with people, apply biblical truth to everyday lives. And as we see specifically applied to this situation where there were two different cultures who perhaps misunderstood each other, um, and because of some of the um, teaching of the Pharisees, didn't like each other, but, but had, were recently saved and brought together under the body of believers, these men would have the opportunity, because of their love for God and their love for other people, and the wisdom of, of that they've have, had from learning from um, the apostles and learning how to deal with people, would be able to uh, bring these people together to be able to serve together. So wisdom is a crucial area. Uh, so the next uh, several, the next verse here to um, bring up seven men, and I find it interesting that they all have Greek names. So perhaps they were all um, uh, Hellenist Jews, Jews that had come, uh, that had moved back to Jerusalem, and so perhaps the the, the wisdom and the thinking here that the apostles thought is. We'll bring in, as, as some of our first deacons, um, some of the group that are feeling that they're being neglected and bring these spiritual men here to help uh, bridge that understanding, bridge that uh, gap that's happening between the two cultures here. So the first, the first uh, two names are names that are familiar. Uh, they chose Stephen. and says that he's a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Of course, we'll see later on in, uh, in the chapter, in the next couple of chapters here, what happened with, with Stephen, how he played a pivotal role as the gospel goes from Jerusalem and spreads outward because of, because of the, his martyrdom. 
His character was described as, as being one who, a man who was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Great way to be described. Uh, next one is Philip, and nothing is mentioned about him in this, in this passage. Uh, he also takes a prominent role uh, in Acts chapter 8, I believe, uh, as, as he takes the gospel on to the Samaritans. And again, that's a, another group that was a culturally didn't get, a well, didn't get along well with the Jewish people. So we see Philip as a man who had uh, the ability and the love of other cultures, the love of other people, the desire to see the gospel go across to, to other countries, to other areas, and to see other people uh, place their faith in Christ. Again, he was also instrumental in um, sharing the gospel, explaining uh, to the Ethiopian eunuch what the, what the book of Isaiah was written about. So a man who had a special love for people of other countries and other cultures. Um, the other five, the remaining five here, not really much is known about them. Um, Prochorus might have been the, a man who wrote for the Apostle John. Uh, we don't know if, uh, specifically if that's true or not. Um, the rest of them, not much is mentioned about them, except that Nicholas was a proselyte from Antioch. So he was, um, he had at some point uh, had uh, converted to Judaism, come from uh, Antioch, and then after that likely um, placed his faith in Christ, perhaps at, the, at Pentecost. Uh, so these seven were brought before the apostles um, and uh, laid hands upon them. Um, verse 6 says, whom they, And they sat before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So this is the first time we see the aspect of laying hands upon uh, the spiritual leaders of the church, what we do now commonly when we um, elect a deacon. Uh, as a uh, visual uh, uh, look at supporting their ministry uh, and praying for them. And as we look through these men here, that we see the importance that they had in tying together the unity of the church. In a, church, in a time period where the church was very fragile and there was a possibility of, of a split and a lot of disunity going on, disagreements, complaints, these seven men were, had been prepared along the way, discipled, equipped, and were ready to step into this task. Uh, so as we look at our final uh, way that how discipleship enhances gospel growth, we see that um, because of this, the gospel was, was further proclaimed. Um, verse 7 is my favorite part of this, this section, this, this section of Scripture here. Then the word of, God, the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So again, this is a, you see Luke doing this several times uh, at the end of little sections of Scripture here, and, and kind of noting where major periods of growth happened. And we see this happening after these men who were equipped and chosen and set aside for this task. It says, the, God, the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So have you noticed that before? That because of this happening, because of this um, organization, and because these men had been discipled and equipped, and more people were being utilized to meet the needs of other people and to disciple other people, uh, a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. And likely this wouldn't be the high priest or the Sanhedrin, but it would be more the common priests, perhaps like uh, Zechariah, uh, back in the book of Luke, 
Um, but a, a number of the priests um, placed their faith in Christ because of this. And what a wonderful way of summing up the passage here, where there was a crisis, a time that the church looked like it would break apart, but yet in the, with the, the wisdom that God gave the apostles, chose men who loved God, who loved other people, who had a burden to see people come together, even great numbers of people from different cultures, different backgrounds, uh, come together and worship, to God, worship together as a body of believers. Um, and right after this, I find it kind of interesting that the progression here right after this passage is when Stephen uh, becomes persecuted and is, and is martyred. And so perhaps the, what's happening here, the, the, the great number of priests um, that, that became believers during this time period, that may have been the, what kind of set things in action for persecution to be ramped up. And as that per- persecution ramps up, what happens? Christians are scattered and pushed out. And so the natural progression that we see where the gospel should go, that, that we see in Acts uh, in chapter 1, when they, they see it goes from Jerusalem to Ju- Judea, happened because there was a unity in the church. There were people that came together and set aside their cultures, their backgrounds, and discipled people and, and put men uh, who, had, uh, who loved God and had spiritual wisdom into these positions and the, the gospel went out more smoothly and pe- more people got saved and priests got saved, came out of Judaism, believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And because of all this, the gospel spreads to Samaria, Judea, Samaria, and then um, eventually to the uttermost parts. So we see here how important it is to have unity in a church. And we're thankful and blessed to have a church here that has unity, and we need to pray that that unity continues. Because without unity, it's almost impossible to be able to effectively spread the gospel in, in, with uh, people around us. So as we close here, I want to say our, our theme here again, the church is best unified in accomplishing the mission of making disciples when its members are equipped to humbly serve and disciple other people. And it's been a theme of our church to, to make disciples, to see people go out and make disciples of other, other people, and to, to really get along humbly along with each other. And we pray that that continues. It's a great, great chapter, a great challenge for all of us as we uh, seek to do this. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word this morning. We thank you for the encouragement that we find that even when there are um, challenges that arise in a church, um, whether they may be uh, cultural differences or just having a lot of people and, and having a, a, a challenge of how to effectively minister that you have uh, uh, given wisdom here of how to uh, use uh, men in the church as deacons and to train people so that the whole church benefits and so that we can all be disciples. I pray that you would um, help us to desire to have unity in this church and to be able to uh, see that uh, and uh, accomplish great things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.